0: I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church podcast. Welcome podcast listeners to the final episode of Lent in 2023. The forgiveness of debts, especially as it applies to the lives of Christian leaders like you and me. How do we make forgiveness a habit? Call for forgiveness in communities after atrocity or hurt. Cultivate forgiveness from the heart. Know when we need to offer it, especially among the daily slings and arrows of outrageous church administration expectations, daily drama. We'll talk about the forgiveness of ancestral wrongs as well, and how forgiveness is possible in the midst of deep social injustice. And how about forgiving literal debt? Anybody up for that? we're going to hear from seven guests about their take on some aspect of the words of our Lord's prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. How might Jesus' shepherding of us, his gentle but persistent calls to forgiveness, pervade all these areas of our lives and gain ground for grace and for his glory? Now, hold on real tight to your purple stoles. Forgiveness can be a bumpy ride but it's one the Lord promises to bless us and help us on. To set the tone for this conversation on forgiveness, I called up the Right Reverend Todd Hunter, who's a church planter and Bishop of the Diocese of Churches for the Sake of Others in the Anglican Church in North America. Todd's perspective on forgiveness, I think, provides a good framework as we dive into specific stories and a few strategies for understanding and implementing forgiveness in our own hearts, as well as in our communities. Bishop Todd, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: I am delighted to be with you. Thanks for having me.
0: You have been in ministry for a long time.
1: Yep. See all that gray hair? I do.
0: (laughs) You all can't see it, but I just want to corroborate. Yes, gray hair. You're very familiar with many of the ways, I'm sure, that people in ministry, we can get tangled up in knots in Mm -hmm. unforgiveness. Yep. What are some particular thorny patches for people in ministry when it comes to forgiveness?
1: Yeah, we just walked through a really thorny patch the last six or seven years, going back to the election cycle before 2020 and then the pandemic and all that. Oh, yeah. And it's very much on the front of everybody's mind in the church now about abuse that happens to people in the church. But what we've also noticed in the last two or three years, Amber, is that the abuse runs the other way as well. I hardly know a pastor in America that I've talked to in the last year or so who is not deeply wounded by things that were done to them by church members over vaccines or social distancing or meeting or not. Pastors have just been bludgeoned. Mm. And so what you're talking about here with forgiveness is there couldn't be something more practical in the church right now. I think for me, it all boils down to feeling like a billionaire in grace. Like when I just think of all my many sins before I was converted and even the sins since then, like God has been so richly good to me that I'm like a billionaire. I So like a billionaire giving five bucks to somebody, <laughs> I think is what forgiveness ought to feel like to us. Now I know that's hmm. easier said than done, yeah. but I think that's the root of it is we've been, ourselves been so forgiven and let off the hook and cherished by a God, even in the midst of all of our brokenness. So just think of something as as ubiquitous as uh, pornography. The trick to getting past pornography is not to somehow guttingly wrench out somehow changing yourself. But what if you came to treasure women so much that you'd never use them in that way? Yeah. And I think the same thing is at the heart of forgiveness that we would treasure and cherish others so much that it would be easy for us to forgive others. And I know that sounds idealistic, but it's honestly the way I talk to myself when I'm struggling with forgiveness.
0: What would you say to someone who says, Bishop Todd, I would really love to be able to put myself in that mindset, but I'm struggling, I'm tired or I'm weary. Someone who's coming out of COVID and just starting to really feel in their bodies and in their souls the stress and the strain of that time as a pastor, what's something you could say to them as a word of encouragement to continue the work of forgiving?
1: What you're rightly getting at, Amber, is there's an emotional and there's a psychological and there's social components to forgiveness. I'm highlighting theological or spiritual components, and some of your other guests will probably be able to talk more adequately about the social, but again, maybe this is just the way my mind and heart works, but I go back to all the way to the very beginning of creation. And I would invite your listeners to hear the forgiveness implicit in this question, Adam, where are you? Mm -hmm. Adam, can you see the brokenness here? But I want to be with you. And then all through the whole long story of the scriptures up to today, I would just want to say that forgiveness is just right core at the heart of everything that God's up to in the world. I want to become the kind of person who easily lets other people off the hook out of that kind of generosity of spirit I was describing.
0: Yeah. And Bishop Todd, I'm also hearing that you see forgiveness as at the center Mm -hmm. of ministry.
1: Yeah. Oh, yes. And so in people who teach and preach, certainly assuring people of forgiveness and how it works and how it's attained, and in more pastoral kind of teaching how we can forgive each other. But you're right, Amber, if you think of vestries or parish councils or staff meetings, whatever, we're like porcupines in a bag and we just (laughs) poke each other constantly. And so again, like being able to see that for what it is as a part of human brokenness and that we're all on a journey of following Jesus better. But along that journey, we do poke each other. So therefore, I think forgiveness needs to become something that feels routine Mm. because the need for it is going to be routine. I hadn't thought about this until you started asking me, but I think it's very much been a part of my own conscious spiritual formation. How do I become the kind of person for whom forgiveness would be pretty natural, pretty intuitive, pretty routine. And again, I'm not perfect. No one's perfect. But I think to answer your question, we have to probably intentionally make it an aspect of our formation and engage in the kind of spiritual practices that would help us become good at forgiveness.
0: Yeah. So it's also a kind of muscle that mm-hmm. we're always having so. to activate yeah. and work.
1: I think that's well, a good way to put it. Yeah.
0: Thank you for your time, Bishop Todd. And thank you also for giving me a new joke, which is how do porcupines hold a vestry meeting? Very carefully.
1: Yeah. How do porcupines in a bag do a vestry meeting? Thank you. Thank you for that. (laughs) Very carefully.
0: (laughs) So what if you have to forgive people who used to be your friends or colleagues who have attacked you and harmed you personally? The Reverend Dr. Cheryl Bridges-Johns, visiting professor at United Theological Seminary and director of their global Pentecostal House of Studies, shares a moment with me when she experienced the need to offer forgiveness to those who really hurt her and how God met her with a peace that passed understanding. Now, Cheryl, you are not an Anglican or an Episcopalian unless something really big has changed since last time I talked to you. But I was chatting with you on the phone several weeks ago, And we were talking about forgiveness and I thought your story was so worth sharing for pastors in any tradition. My question for you today is how do you forgive other Christians who intentionally or sometimes unintentionally place stumbling blocks in the way of fulfilling your call? So something got real crazy at some point in your ministry and God's grace and God's love got really real for you. Can you just tell us that story?
2: Yes. You know, I just finished reading Beth Moore's memoir. And, you know, we're in a kind of an interesting, somewhat perilous time of intense culture wars. And that often plays out in family systems, church systems. And so I think what happened to Beth Moore in terms of the attacks from very conservative Southern Baptist happened to me only on a much smaller scale. I um, became a rallying point for this ultra-conservative group who have a sense that there's liberal drift and that often the terms liberal drift and women and then feminism, woke, pick your choice of words usually get applied, and they often try to find a rallying point or a person, a scapegoat, often that is the best one is to find a woman. I became the easy target and things that my male colleagues had done for years, nobody ever thought about, sometimes referring to the Holy Spirit and the feminine. I'll take a, the Rush Limbaugh approach and I'll take something out of context, oh. <laughs> twist it and use a little like, phrases like Cheryl and her she-god and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, that started years ago when it became known that I wasn't a friend of Donald Trump. So it just escalated. And it got to the point to where you just say, I love the people of this church too much to stay in. For as long as I'm in, I become used in ways that are not healthy, not just for me, but for the body of Christ. And anger is a good thing, can fuel righteousness, But there's then the path that you choose about bitterness, and there's a sense of not letting yourself become what you are fighting against. Brene Brown talked about in one of her earlier books that when things happen that are just really awful, maybe overt sexism or whatever, she says it's often good to to depersonalize in a sense of it's not just me. This is the issue of sexism, misogyny, or whatever. That helps because when you say, oh, everybody hates me or it's about me, you internalize and make it personal. So it's very helpful for me to look at the larger landscape and say, I just got pulled into something bigger that's going on. Like a principalities and powers perspective? Yeah, I could use that language very easily. Women have a tendency to internalize the voice of the external, Mm. and that can be deadly. I'm old enough, I guess, had this happened when I was much younger, it would have been more difficult. But just to say, this isn't about me. And the forgiveness, when you depersonalize it in the sense of, bless their hearts, these guys, (laughs) they're just caught up in a frenzy of the current culture wars. And it is a quest for power, a very big quest for power, like who's going to win and who's going to lose. So part of me is concerned for them in the sense that where all of that kind of stuff leads to in the end, what it will do to them. And so I pray for them. And I don't know, Amber, like, I really love some of these guys. So for me, I am trying to, spending a lot of times in Colossians 3, like living in love and clothing ourselves in love and letting the peace of Christ rule our hearts. And, and you know, there's that line that's so pertinent for Lent that Paul says there, for you have died and your life is hidden in Christ. I just say that over and over during Lent, for you have died, for you Hmm. have died. And when we go through times of whatever we call persecution or pushback or online slander, I have a lot of that stuff that you see. It's very helpful
0: to already be dead. What worse could they do to you? I mean, I think of the psalm, Cheryl, that says, what can flesh do to me? Yeah. And there was this strength in the very worst of the time when it was every
2: day, almost something new. I just found the Lord's presence so dear and near and delightful. The Lord just decided to lavish love upon me. And looking back at it, I almost miss those times. And that is strange. I don't, I don't miss those times. But the nearness of the Lord during that time was so dear and unique in my life. And people that I knew, mystics, would send me messages saying, hey, I just had this dream about you. It was so strange. Or is something going on with you? Wow. And it was just such affirmation. The body of Christ is so broken, as is the case of what happened to me. But it is also beautiful at the same time. Mm. It's broken and beautiful. And it's, it's a mess. But I deeply appreciate the body of Christ during that time.
0: I was never alone. You know, at the grocery store, if you use your debit card, it's going to ask if you want cash back. I often say yes, just so I can have an extra five bucks in my pocket. You never know when you're going to need that cash. But it turns out, as often as not, that it's someone else who could use the five bucks. And this reminds me that monthly support of the Living Church podcast is about the same amount. Just like the bit of grocery store cash lying around, it can go to a good cause. If you enjoy this show, it might be time to become a monthly supporter. Your support is a gift that you can feel great about, encouraging, equipping, and entertaining Christian leaders serving the Anglican family. Support options include 99 cents four ninety nine, and nine ninety nine a month. To share a little love with TLC, go to anchor.fm forward slash living dash church and click support or just click the link in the show notes today. Now we're gonna hear from several voices in a row. For the next few conversations, we're going to speak to the nature of forgiveness and how it works in community, how it can look and feel different across generations and how to work toward reconciliation when that's necessary or desired. First, I spoke with Dr. Nigel Bigger, author of Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning, Regis Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology at the University of Oxford and Director of the McDonald Center for theology, ethics, and public life. When looking at a colonial past or the sins of our ancestors with regret, Nigel admits his perspective might be somewhat unfashionable, but we welcome dialogue here at The Living Church, and he offers some insights that are well worth considering. Nigel places emphasis on remembering correctly when we look at the past, focusing on justice in current circumstances and present relationships, and having mercy on complexity, even while righting past wrongs. That way, maybe, just maybe, with God's grace, we might be able to avoid some of the mistakes that our ancestors made. Then we'll hear from the Reverend David Sibley, rector of St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Walla Walla, Washington, who's also, sorry, David, I had to add, a four-time Jeopardy champion, whoop whoop. Recently, he led his congregation to relieve over $2 million worth of medical debt in their community. It's forgiveness in a very literal light and offers important takeaways on the impact of a no strings attached act of mercy. And while David's congregation was forgiving medical debt, the Right Reverend Dilaraj Kanagasabi, Bishop of Colombo in Sri Lanka and former presiding bishop of the Church of Ceylon, was issuing a call to forgiveness in his nation for ethnic violence. He joined us from Sri Lanka, and while our internet connection wasn't ideal, his story and wisdom came through loud and clear. I can't wait to share our conversation with you. And finally, we'll hear from the Reverend Rachel Tabor Hamilton, Rector of Trinity Episcopal Church in Everett, Washington, and Vice President of the House of Deputies of the Episcopal Church. In working with First Nations communities and with peoples of color, and in the wake of George Floyd's death in 2020, she worked hard with other leaders to ask a similar question to Nigel. How do we forgive and reconcile across generations so that it makes an actual difference in people's lives today? Nigel, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: It's my pleasure to uh, be with you.
0: It's an honor. And you have spent many years of your life doing deep work in the history, the consequences, and the character of colonialism. Colonialism also was a major topic of the Lambeth Conference this year, also in the background of the Lambeth Conference. And it continues to color conversations about the Anglican Communion. What is the Anglican Communion? How should it function into the future? And so it's also partly what's at stake in, as I'm sure you know, the accusations of of the Global South Fellowship of Anglican Churches against Canterbury and the Global North. So I wonder, Nigel, could you say first a bit more about the sins or trespasses of colonialism? How is this a sin that anyone could actually be personally responsible for today? How do we begin to understand colonialism first as involving sin that can be repented of?
3: So Amber, there are are lots of really important and interesting questions buried in there. So uh, let let me try and address three of them. First of all, there's a question of, of the truth about the past. I myself try and avoid using the word colonialism because it implies a, a kind of unitary single project whereas in fact the phenomena or colonial phenomena were, were very various. Secondly, the question of the truth about the sins of colonial endeavor and government, well, they included of course slavery for a period, economic exploitation, various kinds of racist attitude, unjustifiable violence, the unjustifiable seizure of land. So, so all sorts of sins and and injustices were perpetrated by colonists. Can I just say that mm-hmm. there is a there's a credit as well as a debit ledger because although, for example, uh, the British Empire presided over 150 years, 200 years worth of slave trading and slavery. Britain was among the first states in the world's history to abolish the trade and the institution, and then to abolish it, suppress it worldwide. But the third question really has to do with what, what's it got to do with us? Because uh, whatever my ancestors did, I I didn't do it. And I think that's, that, that's a fair point. So so mm-hmm. nobody living now is directly responsible for what their ancestors did. And I, I myself think, in most cases, trying to unravel historic injustices and to identify who's responsible and who's Who's, who, who is an appropriate beneficiary, is is really quite difficult. I tend to say, you know, let's look at present injustices and let's address those as best we can, rather than try and, and do the very difficult business of, of apportioning blame for injustices committed 100, 200 years ago, or 300 years ago. Hmm. We're all aware of, of sin and wrongdoing, and following the prophet Isaiah, we... Except, I think that all of us, everybody, goes astray, and if we reflect on our own lives as individuals, I mean, my goodness, it's it's a mess. It's, it's a mixture of all sorts of motives and temptations and failures and mistakes. And so I, I think if, if you take that, as it were, complicated self-reflection, and read it back onto history, it should make us beware of caricatures. There was a there's a wonderful quotation I think it's wonderful, made by British government minister in 1900, in the middle of a war in South Africa, where he said, "We have to lie on the bed that other people made for us." One needs to to have a bit of human sympathy for the predicament in which human beings, even colonists, found themselves.
0: Yeah, and I wonder, is there a word that you might say to someone who says, "Let's repent of colonialism" in a way that would be helpful to that person? Yep and that they could find some practicable application?
3: So the first thing I'd say is a willingness to repent is a good thing. (laughs) We Christians, particularly in Lent, we are learning to do it again. And not everyone rates repentance the way Christians do and should. So the first thing to say is a willingness to repent is good. and, And I have no doubt that there are things that we should lament that our ancestors did. Now, I've I moved here from repent to lament, mm. because unless, you know, if if you're the person urging with deep feeling that we should repent, I'd say to you, well, in my view, unless you did it yourself, you can't repent because you didn't do it. What you can is you can lament the fact that your people, your ancestors did certain things, and you can rightly resolve to do what's appropriate to compensate or to make better the lamentable things your ancestors did. But the, the final thing I'd say is just be careful to make sure you get the truth about the past right, because there are different voices and, and different views of quite what happened in the past. So until recently, I was a canon of Christchurch Cathedral here in Oxford. And about 10 years ago, the cathedral was doing some reconstruction. And in the course of this reconstruction, they, they dug up a mass grave. Oh, and it was, it was determined that this was a grave full of the bones of Danes,
4: mm.
3: who were killed when the Anglo-Saxons rose up against them. Mm. The then dean of Christchurch Cathedral, who's a friend of mine, and I'm very fond of him, decided to invite the Norwegian, I think, ambassador, because I guess we, they were called Danes, but they probably came from Norway, to make a formal apology for what happened a thousand years ago. And the Norwegian ambassador came along, and that was that was done. But I just reflected that I mean, the 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 the, the Vikings, the Danes, the, the the Norsemen were famous for their pillaging and rapine. And the Norwegian ambassador didn't feel any obligation to apologise for the behaviour of his countrymen. And of course, you know, we are talking we are talking about something that happened, happened a thousand years ago. So we need to be careful about about feeling responsible for things that happened an awful long time ago whilst wanting to be responsible and to to make things better where it's within one's power.
0: And it seems to me that if we're not seeking to have as accurate as possible a picture of the past and as much compassion as possible for all of the humans in their difficult situations and various states of heart who were involved in our past, that our likelihood of repeating it might be higher, even if we think we're going in the opposite direction.
3: No, that's right. And the danger is we, we become moralistic mm. and we, we 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 you make moral judgments where you don't really understand the predicament of people in the past. So it needs to be to exercise a certain kind of pastoral charity and sensitivity whilst not losing one's moral judgment.
0: Could we say pastoral accuracy?
3: That's good. Yeah, one needs to get it right.
0: <laughs> David, thank you so much for coming on today.
5: I'm glad to be here. Thank you.
0: David, your church, St. Paul's Episcopal in Walla Walla, Washington, in 2020, purchased over $2 million in outstanding medical debt from your community and surrounding area in order to forgive the whole thing, period, no strings attached. How and when did this idea first come up? And then how did it come about?
5: It was just after the pandemic had started and a parishioner reached out to me wanting to make a donation and wanting to do it in such a way that it could have a real impact in our community. And it, I would say by the working of the Holy Spirit emerged as something that, that the donor was interested in. So I reached out to a few more people in the church and then ultimately invited the whole congregation to to participate and the response was just overwhelming it Mm. put us in a position where working with rip medical debt we were able to purchase a large amount not just in walla walla county but statewide and offer that debt forgiveness to people who weren't expecting it st paul's is not huge you
0: generated such generosity in your congregation so quickly. Is this something you would recommend others to do and why?
5: Yeah, absolutely. We raised, number offhand, was somewhere between nineteen dollars and $20,000 purchased all of that debt. It literally cost pennies on the dollar. The debts that we purchased were debts that hospitals had given up as being uncollectible. They were mm. sold on the open market to debt collectors who could buy them at that rate, and if they converted 1% or 2% of those into payments, they were making a tidy profit. Everybody has gotten a bill from the hospital or from a doctor's office or after a medical procedure that has surprised them or overwhelmed them. Yeah. And first thing you want to do is you figure, how am I going to pay this? I think it's something that touched everyone in a real way. And I think, given that we were in the midst of the pandemic, it was a time that people wanted to do something that gave them some skin in the game. Mm-hmm. And I think there was an immediacy to this that even things like our soup kitchen didn't provide to people because of the people in our congregation, you know. The vast majority of them have never been in a position to be a client of our soup kitchen. But I think at some point in your life, everybody has gotten a medical bill. And so I think there was a resonant, an emotional resonance that led people to give. I think it's important in some ways from time to time to give something where you may have the resonance with it, but you will never touch and never see. Because if you can do that, if you can let go of what you've earned to people you don't know. And what people you don't know will experience is pure grace in a sense that does not resonate in a secular mind. It will help you realize how much you are a beneficiary of that same grace in your life, experienced through the parish, experienced in Jesus, so on and so forth. So I think people gave, were stunned by the, the effectiveness of the return of their gift, But also we're stunned by the immediacy of understanding what it could do in someone's life in a way other things don't.
0: Yeah, David, a couple of examples from scripture come to mind for me. One of those is the parable of the ruler who forgives the man who then refuses to forgive. And one of the principles embedded in this parable that you have just really brought home for me is that forgiveness can be a way to put yourself in the shoes of another person. It's an exercise in empathy, among other things, and seeing ourselves as common recipients of grace, which is really beautiful. And I'm wondering, as a final question for you, what connections have you seen between the forgiveness of spiritual debts, which is what we normally think of when we say forgive us our debts, and the forgiveness of money debts, the literal forgiveness of literal debts. Has anything stood out to you or surprised you here about those connections?
5: My parishioners hear from me a lot that even in times of declining church attendance and declining religiosity, one of the reasons I have constant hope for the church's mission and ministry in the years ahead is that we live in a world where most people have a sense of right and wrong. They have a sense of transgression. You don't have to be religious to hold to a real notion of sin. I do not think that the secular world has a real answer on the whole for grace. Mm. I think the world is hungry for grace. People are weighed down by sin, but very rarely do people feel that they are recipients of grace. And I think for folks that got a letter in the mail from RIP Medical Debt saying that this bill that you've been chasing for has been forgiven, no strings attached, don't worry about it, it's gone. Some folks are just gonna be grateful that the bill is gone. Some folks are going to have an experience of mercy that is unearned and undeserved and has happened anyway. Mm. And that is the Christian life in a nutshell. And so all I can hope is maybe It will make people some more inquiring about what the church does and what we believe. But at the end of the day, whether we're talking about in the sacraments or whether we're talking about in the world outside, we are called to be representatives of the grace of God into which we in the church are a part and then carry that outside and grow bit by bit more and more into the image of Jesus.
0: Bishop Dilo, thank you for joining us today.
6: It's a joy to be with you. Thank you.
0: Bishop, you were the presiding bishop of Colombo in Sri Lanka during the Sri Lankan civil war. And then Mm. in Easter Sunday, 2019, several churches and hotels were attacked by suicide bombers who were associated with ISIS. And you gave a response. You called Sri Lankan people to love their Muslim neighbors in response to this attack even though Sri Lanka is still coming out of the civil war and you called Sri Lankan people to embrace their Muslim neighbors. You also said, and this really stuck with me out of the debris of this chaotic situation, something beautiful, something fragrant needs to emerge. And I wanted to ask you about that today. What does forgiveness have to do? Not just with letting go, because we often talk about forgiveness as a letting go, but you use the word embracing. What does forgiveness have to do with embracing?
6: Thank you, Amber. I said that out of my prayerful discernment of what God was calling me to say. Why? Because I coming, myself coming from the Tamil community and my wife being a Sinhalese in 1983, the Tamils were caught and chopped and, and burnt alive. and mm running for their lives. So you could just imagine the, the, the background situation. But thankfully, I must say for 39 years, we are happily married. And I have a daughter uh, who is 36 years old and my son who is 33 years old. And I, I am a grandfather of four grandchildren. When the Tamils were killed, the Sinhalese were serving sweetmeats and celebrating. And when the Sinhalese were killed, the Tamils were celebrating. And when we were praying on our knees, right, we broke down in tears. Why? Because we were able to see the bleeding nation in our children. Our two children were neither Tamils nor Sinhalese. They were Sri Lankans. Um, So that gave me an impetus uh, that I must always work for reconciliation and peace. Because I believe that Jesus died for all, not only for Christians, He died for the Buddhists, He died for the, the, the Hindus, the Muslims, and 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 we are all being created in God's holy image. And the holy image of God in me demands that I respect the holy image of God in the other. Mm. So I I I I really said that we need to forgive because Jesus, Jesus hanging on the cross said something which we are called to follow. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. They do not know the miserable consequences that they have to pay for taking the life of the other. Mm -hmm. Because life belongs to God. Remember in the story of um, uh, Cain and Abel, Cain killed Abel and God asked the question, where is your brother? And he had the audacity to say, Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord was very angry, and He said, "How dare you say that when His His uh, blood is crying from the ground for justice, and and in this soil, in this little island of ours, which is supposed to be the pearl of the Indian Ocean, right? It has sucked so much of human blood."
0: Bishop, I'm so glad that you shared that context because I think a lot of people have questions about the relationship between forgiveness and justice. If forgiveness is given and extended, then how is justice really done? I struggle with this sometimes. But as you're describing this foundation, this these foundational principles of forgiving the debts of others and embracing others, I hear a few things. I hear first of all that even something as large as national division can be healed in forgiveness because forgiveness is, first of all, a witness that Jesus died for everyone. And Mm -hmm. it seems to me also from what you've said that forgiveness is a witness for Christians that we won't put up with a society that celebrates the destruction of any other people. And and so in that way, forgiveness is a is a deep word of peace. I suppose yeah. in a way it can accept the judgment of God when it comes um, in in whatever form, um, but doesn't uh, take it upon itself to extend that judgment to other people.
6: Yeah, I I totally believe uh, Amber that retribution comes from God, mm. right? And we, at that time we can only cry out for mercy and 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 forbearance, you know, asking God to be uh, merciful to such people.
0: What is a circumstance that you've seen a beautiful fragrance come out of because of forgiveness?
6: Yeah. When this Easter bombing took place, we reached out to our people and we said, hold on, hold on to the Lord. Do not react. Do not go eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? And 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 the very stance that our Christians demonstrated at that time—they were publicly talking about it. Even in Parliament, they were speaking about it. And even papers, in articles, how the Christians behaved when such thing happened to them, and, and there was no retaliation. We only call for prayer, for calmness and and peace to prevail, and, and for people to have the courage to accept the reality and ask God's healing upon their broken lives.
0: They were even talking in Parliament about how well Christians were behaving. That's incredible.
6: Yeah, definitely.
0: Wow. Being an American, I'm sort of imagining the government saying, whoa, Christians in America have suddenly started acting really weird. They're not really interested in retaliation or violence anymore. What's happened? What's happened to us?
6: I know. I know. There are two things there to ask for the peace of God and um, inviting the peace of God to rule our lives and also peace with God. Mm. And uh, that is important, that we need to really pray that each person will come into a living relationship with God. You know, there is, there is that quietness, that 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 peace, that, that God is with you as God Emmanuel, God with us and God within us.
0: Rachel, thank you so much for joining me.
7: My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation.
0: You've worked with... First Nations communities of which you're a part, the Shotgun Nation. Your work has included trauma recovery, civil policy development. You're a priest at a local parish. You're the vice president of the House of Deputies for the Episcopal Church. I just wanted to ask you, do you know something about forgiveness in any of this
7: journey? Yeah, I think the whole journey for me, you know, on a personal level is intergenerational trauma. How can I reconcile as a person who? as colonial inheritance and heritage through my father's lineage and indigenous lineage through my mother's. So mother First Nation, my father sort of going back to the 1600s when the second Mayflower arrived. So I I found that necessity of reconciliation, just even within my own identity, is being really important. So for me, forgiveness is a bit different from reconciliation. In that, if it's a pretty, it's a much more formulaic process. Another party needing to name that wrong and the harm done, and then me as perhaps the receiving party, or vice versa, needing to to say, okay, I do forgive, and and we can we can move forward. I can move forward, and then reconciliation to me is is something that it takes a lot of work. But well, internally and relationally, whereas forgiveness might be around a specific incident, and and then you may or may not have a relationship with. yeah, for me, reconciliation is that long-term process, and forgiveness is sort of okay, a one-off, but but we need to we need to do that together.
0: I wonder, Rachel, if there's a story that you might feel comfortable telling that illustrates one or more of these levels of forgiveness
7: there's a couple of ways one is an organizational systemic thing i've observed with the episcopal church and indigenous people but then there's also a personal way that this has worked out for me with a bishop in the church so the systemic thing is that several general conventions ago the episcopal church we you know, basically rejected the doctrine of discovery and said, you know, we apologize to indigenous people for the way that the church was sort of the delivery system mm. for cultural oppression and genocide. It's really only been like with the last two general conventions, I would say, where we've passed really operational kinds of resolutions on behalf of our Indigenous communities to say, look. You need to learn about doctrine discovery. You need to know who your local tribes are. You need to engage with those communities and let them lead you because it is about relationship. Reconciliation isn't just sort of like a feel-good resolution.
0: I'm so glad you said that, Rachel, because I have another guest on this episode who has concerns about the church's current habit of issuing formal apologies for past sins without any resonance in current relationships. There's something that can be so beautiful about issuing a ceremonial formal apology for wrongs that ancestors did to ancestors. But then but then what,
7: (laughs) you know, but but
0: then what about you? What about me? We
7: need the church to be doing the work of deconstructing the ongoing systems that continue to create harm and obstruction and injustice for indigenous peoples and people of color, frankly, within the church.
0: It's a good reminder that we hear deconstruction of colonialism. We think, (laughs) Oh boy. You know, maybe I'll get to that on Tuesday, you know, but really it's just, it's, it's about relationships with people who are around you. The way that we participate in God's healing is through very specific and oftentimes very small actions. And do you have a moment to tell the story about what
7: happened with you and the bishop? Yeah, I think it's appropriate that I name him because we did so much work together on this. Greg Rickle in the Mm -hmm. Diocese of Olympia, when he arrived on the scene many years ago, I think he did an assessment of how should we be relating, you know, interculturally. And as I think was a good intention at the time, basically, he was uncomfortable, I think, with thinking about um, people of color in silos and felt like the answer was, let's do integration, which is a kind of a common White thing to want to do. There's a discomfort with thinking about people separately. We had had prior to his arrival, we'd had a piece of the diocesan budget for what was then called ethnic ministries that also held a staff position, an ethnic missioner position. So when he came and his idea to sort of why are we treating them differently, he defunded all of that. And some of our historic leaders of color also in that process were kind of alienated and some of them our elders died and that contributed actually us not feeling integrated or empowered at all mm. <laughs> so we got people of color together got created a network called circles of color and we promoted a lot of discussion and truth telling during our 2019 diocesan convention, and then that led to a series of conversations with bishop rickle we started doing this work prior to the death of George Floyd. And so when that happened, it's like a rocket went off. And then Greg Rickle and I met, and also the former missioner, ethnic missioner, the Reverend Jerry Shikaki. Three of us began to meet to talk about what had happened and why it had gone down the way it did and what needed to change. About it. And ultimately, he was extremely supportive and began to understand and hear differently. And I admire him so much for being willing to make that journey. I think it's one of the most powerful things that I've ever invested my life energy into. And it has changed my attitude hmm. because he was receptive to it. Hmm. Most of the time, I'd say 89% of the time, <laughs> leadership especially is not open to acknowledging past wrong or harm or history. Hmm.
0: Hmm. What is it that, that, gets in people's way. Because you're not just solving a problem. You're, you're, you're opening up a closed door. You're saying, yes, please open a possible vista for me of something that I didn't even realize needs to be addressed. And then please share with me how you think I should do it. I mean, that's very vulnerable for a leader and to that's, do. That's the word
7: I was going to use. It, There's a lot of trust and empowerment into the role of bishop or any leadership position in the church and so you kind of get used to having to wear that armor i think and so when those really legitimate moments happen where and you look at them and you say oh not only maybe did i personally as a leader kind of muck something up that i didn't understand but you're also as a leader especially at that level symbolically representing the whole history of church and bishops everywhere at any time you could be an instrument of reconciliation on behalf of all history before you. Hmm. Not only about you, it's what you're representing of the whole past. So you have an opportunity as a leader to disarmor hmm. and be vulnerable and do more than apologize, but be committed to change.
0: We've been hearing stories of forgiveness on a community scale. But forgiveness always begins with a human heart softened by the Spirit of God. What does that process look like? The Reverend Stephen Crawford is the rector of St. Mary's Episcopal Church in Franklin, Louisiana. And a few years ago, he wrote an article for us on a prayer practice that helps the average Christian embrace the power of forgiveness daily, practically, and simply. I brought him on to ask him about it. Now, a few years ago, you wrote this article for The Living Church on forgiveness, specifically a certain prayer practice. Would you tell us a little bit about your journey with this? Why does this mean so much to you?
4: Jesus tells us how important it is for us to forgive and to forgive from the heart. And then I think once I sort of actually started doing this in such a brass tacks, practical way, then I realized so many things that I was carrying around and had no idea they were there, exerting influence on me in ways that I just didn't even appreciate or realize. And of course, you know, it's a surprise to realize I'm spending the most time forgiving the people closest to me, the people that I love the most, <laughs> but also even like going back to middle school to remembering people that picked on me and it like really hurt my feelings. And, oh um, yeah.
0: Oh yeah. Um, that's real.
4: That's for real. So digging in that deep was really helpful. And then there aren't many opportunities to really do that in the church. Jesus told us to, but there just aren't many sort of Opportunities where that is facilitated in such a practical way. We say the Lord's Prayer, we share the peace. That should be a very powerful thing. And certainly the reconciliation of a penitent can actually be an opportunity to confess unforgiveness. And that can be an opportunity to practically work through it.
0: I do want to go through the basic steps of this prayer practice. So if you boil it down, this practice starts with thanking God that he has forgiven you, very simple. And then saying, would you please put into my mind anyone who I still need to forgive? So you can come to it without even knowing already specifically who you need to forgive. Okay, so names might come to mind and then you just take one person at a time and just pray this very short prayer of letting go essentially where you say, I choose to forgive and you say their name. And then you say, four, and then you name what they did that hurt you. And then, interestingly, you also say, and it made me feel. And then you say how it made you feel. You don't need to necessarily be able to rationalize even that what they did was a sin. It could just be, they may have just said something and you were in a bad mood and it struck you the wrong way. But the fact that it's stuck in your craw... Is really what's at issue in this particular prayer practice. This is really honing in on your own ability to hold on to things or to let go of things and to let those spaces be filled with other things that God might wanna give you. And you literally say, Lord, I let go of resentment.
4: Yeah, that the Lord, I let go of any resentment is a prayer that you say to close out each individual person. Lord, I let go of any resentment. You ask the Lord please heal all my wounds for asking Jesus's name. Sometimes I've thought of forgiveness as God. It's not one and the same thing as healing. But I thought of it is we do get wounded, and then we oftentimes don't address or deal with the wounds. We just cover over them real quick, and sometimes they, they can get infected. I think of forgiveness with just the honest looking at these things with Jesus, kind of like unwrapping the wounds, which can be a painful process. And yet, can be just a really important part of, of a larger process of healing.
0: I wondered if there's a specific story that comes to your mind that illustrates some of the work that you've seen the practice of really specific forgiveness do.
4: We, I did a vestry retreat where we took time and the vestry did this forgiveness exercise. People preparing for baptism, people preparing for confirmation, premarital counseling. Wow. And so in terms of the fruit, you know, a lot of it I find myself thinking, we really actually kind of hand this off to a lot of people. And I have no idea what's happening.
0: Um, <laughs> and I
4: hope that I hope it's transformative.
0: This is also side note, a great reminder that being a sacramental and incarnational people also involves being really specific and not being euphemistic about stuff we're dealing with. And the way that this also like dovetails really beautifully if someone has spiritual direction or does therapy or any of these other things. This just seems like forgiveness, its root systems spread through all of these facets mm-hmm. of spiritual care in a healthy Christian life.
4: I think sometimes something can be addressed in prayer in a fairly general way. And yet mm-hmm. the Lord honors the prayer and does what needs doing. And yet at, Sometimes the Lord may say, we need, let's take a closer look at this. Let's deal with this uh, more explicitly, more specifically. What can sometimes seem to be a barrier is it seems that I find people sometimes convincing themselves that they don't have that they don't need to forgive people or that what was done wasn't so bad or make excuses for people about things that happened. I think I have tried to be discerning just for the particular person. And so much of that depends on just your sense of where they're at, and what they can handle. And it may just be the case that like what they are avoiding at that point may, like they just may not be prepared to to grapple with it. Oftentimes though, I have gently suggested, well, you know, that you think you've forgiven this person and you probably have to some extent, but Jesus says that we need to forgive from the heart. So just to say that there can be layers of forgiveness. And sometimes we can come back to something and find that we're able to forgive more deeply.
0: Yeah. I love this phrase that you keep using, forgiving from the heart. Boy, that's hard. (laughs) That's hard to do. It's not something you can force, but it's certainly something that you can start. And it seems to me that having Having a little technique can be just such a great way to get into a big job
4: I, I think it's a good it's a good word to to call this technique for forgiveness, but there's something a little bit misleading about that.
0: Ah, okay,
4: just in the sense that you're being guided, you know that you're walking with the Lord and letting the Lord take you by the hand and minister to you
0: Father Stephen just totally called me out all right <laughs> <laughs> very gently and kindly. it's not all about technique amber. Thanks for sharing your wisdom about forgiveness and helping us to learn a way to become more aligned what God has for us and to be able to receive his love and share it with other people. Thanks for coming on, Stephen. Thank you, Amber. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you enjoy this show, consider becoming a monthly supporter of the Living Church Podcast. It costs as little as 99 cents a month. Just go to anchor.fm forward slash living church and click support. Or if you can't remember all that, just click the link in the show notes. In two weeks, Maundy Thursday, we will welcome writer and activist Victoria Tester about suffering and grace on the Mexican border. She has some extraordinary stories to share. Please join us. Until then, our producer is Leslie Thompson. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been good to be with you. Peace.